Now I want to talk about Al Pacino. <laughs> Al Pacino plays the character of the devil in the movie Devil's Advocate. And in one of the scenes, his character goes on this rant about God. And this rant may be more expressive than people might normally do. But when you listen to Pacino go off on this rant, you realize that many beliefs about God that he expresses are just under the surface for so many people. And there are beliefs about God that cause people to hate God or reject God or simply just dismiss God as irrelevant. But people don't reject God so much as they reject caricatures of God, distorted pictures they have of God because they don't know him. They don't know scripture or because they live with or work with someone who loves to trot out their little pet verse about why everybody should hate God. Just look at what God commanded. I contend that it's very difficult to hate God or to reject God or to dismiss God when you truly know him. Really. But as they say, ignorance is bliss. So if you stay ignorant about God and who he is, you don't have to deal with him. You don't have to submit your life to him. You can reject him and live on blissfully this life you have imagined for yourself without accountability to him. And this is why our culture cheers Pacino on as he rants and rails against God. Here is the edited version. He's responding to another character named Kevin. Who are you carrying all those bricks for anyway? God? Is that it? God? Well, let me tell you. Let me give you a little inside information about God. God likes to watch. He's a prankster. Think about it. He gives man instincts. He gives you this extraordinary gift. And then what does he do? For his own amusement, his own private cosmic gag reel, he sets the rules in opposition. Look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't take. Taste, but don't swallow. And while you're jumping from one foot to the next, what's he doing? Laughing. He's a sadist, an absentee landlord. Worship that? Never. I'm here on the ground with my nose in it since the whole thing began. I've nurtured every sensation man has been inspired to have. I cared about what he wanted, and I never judged him. Why? Because I never rejected him. In spite of all his imperfections, I'm a fan of man. I'm a humanist. I wonder about the person or the team of people who wrote this script for Pacino. What experiences in their life informed them? People like them are all around us. Carrying bricks, yeah, that's what people believe. God's a drudgery, he stifles you, he shackles you. 
The life he requires crushes you. God likes to watch. Yep, he's not involved in our life. God's a prankster. Yeah. Gives us these passions and then he says we can't enjoy them. But I think Pacino best exposes our culture when he says, I am a fan of man. I don't reject man. I love man. I tolerate man. And there you have our culture's view of God. God is not a fan of man. God is against man. God rejects man because we're imperfect. And so it's easy to hate a God like that. Easy to put yourself above a God like that. Easy, at least, for a culture that believes itself to be so good, so compassionate, so accepting, so encouraging to all, regardless of any circumstances. We're back in Deuteronomy chapter 25 this morning. And in these verses, we're going to see the heart of God. And anytime you and I see the true heart of God, we are better prepared to dispel the lies about him. Whenever you and I see the true heart of God, we are presented, you and I are presented with compelling reasons to love and to trust a God like he is. We are better able then to reflect this true God with our own lives so that others may trust him well. And that's my prayer this morning. And exactly the thing that will happen as we come together around the word of God. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25. And when you've found your place in Deuteronomy chapter 25, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning in verse 4, this is the word of the Lord. Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. And if he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we may be scratching our heads about how a verse like this could reveal your heart. But Lord, indeed it does. And so we are eager to come now together around your truth. And we pray, as always, that as we come around your truth, that your spirit would be the teacher. Lord, reveal 
yourself to us through your word. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we may see you. And as we see you, love you more dearly, trust you more fully. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, believe it or not, this first picture of the heart of God is in verse 4. Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Now, following the grand theme that we looked at last week about God's justice and being overwhelmed and truly grateful that our God is a God who redeems and restores and renews, this week we end up in a barn with an ox that's trampling out on the threshing floor, the grain, or, or, or an ox that's, that's pulling a sledge that's going to separate the ears from the stalk. Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Well, this seems like a random law to us, but then we know that with God, nothing is random. Somehow this is reflective of God's heart. It's reflective of the heart of the God that our culture calls an absentee landlord. The kind of God that so much of the world believes we have would neither see this ox, or if he did see the ox, he would not care about it or about the grain that it's trampling on. But the truth is that God does care. So please imagine... God legislates on behalf of an ox. Why? Because man may not have the same heart that God has toward this animal. Because man, as wonderful as he believes himself to be, may not be inclined to treat this animal justly. He may not have the love for this animal that God has for this animal that he has created. And so therefore, he may abuse God's creation. Some owner of an ox may actually put a piece of leather over the ox's mouth so that it cannot eat while it's doing the work. So it cannot be energized to continue doing the work that its owner demands of it. Why would a man whose heart is so wonderful... Do such a thing. Maybe greed. The more the ox eats, the less the man has for himself, the less he has to sell. Maybe it's an Ebenezer Ebenezer Scrooge forbidding Bob Cratchit even an extra piece of coal to put in the, the, the fire to warm himself on a freezing cold day. Perhaps the man is driven by fear. Perhaps he thinks he must do all he can do to provide for himself because he doesn't trust God will provide for him. And so he's afraid. And you know what? Fear makes us stupid. It does. Drives us to do bad things. In this case, to drive this poor animal. It could just be self-centeredness. This man looks around and everything he sees, he believes that what he sees exists to serve him and to make his life comfortable. Could just be plain old cruelty, lack of compassion. No matter 
what you and I or our culture chooses to believe about the heart of man, there are many reasons why the man may treat the ox this way. And whatever the motivation to muzzle the ox while he's working, God is not willing to leave it up to us, to man, what we might do. And so God tells us what we should do. And if you and I want to rightly represent God to the people who would rail against him, we could point out that the same God who over and over has reminded us in our study of Deuteronomy that we must take care of the widows and the orphans and the aliens also tells us that we must take care of the animals because they are part of God's creation. In his famous teaching on God's providential care, Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See, the flowers of the field, they do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Now that's a really familiar passage to us. And you and I, we're always looking for the takeaway for our lives. And that's right. And that's good. That's what we should do when we come to the word of the Lord. And the takeaway for us is don't worry. God is going to take care of you. But we can't miss the point that Jesus' point only makes sense in context because he's comparing it to the rest of creation. The birds, the air, the lilies of the field, God cares for them. God watches over all of his creation. What a wonderful God. He cares for creation. He'll care for you. God calls us to be good stewards of his creation as well, to treat it well. While the ox is working hard for you, allow him to eat what he needs so that he can continue to do his work. Don't be stingy. John Calvin sees this as an implication of this law. Be generous in your life, the Christian life, your life. My life is about generosity of spirit because the gospel is about generosity. Is it not? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Generosity of spirit. It's about the generosity of Christ who says no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I give it. Of my own accord. That's the heart of our God. A heart that's generous to us. And toward what he has created. A heart that legislates for an ox. It can't care for itself. It can't speak for itself. And so God speaks on its behalf. That's the kind of God that we have. And this is the picture of God. And his heart that you and I need to communicate to the culture around us. And you can ask, if God cares enough to legislate 
on behalf of animals, what do you think God might feel about you? If God works so hard on behalf of animals, what might he be willing to do on your behalf? And then maybe they'll allow us to help them find the answer to that question. Boom, the gospel. The next picture of God's heart in these passage, in this passage, these verses, remind us that God seeks our good. He is for us. And we see this in verses 5 through 10. And, and these verses describe what we call a, a leveret marriage. And here's how it works. You probably caught it. If a man dies without a son, his brother is to marry his widow and therefore carry on the family name of the brother who died. Now, again, this law is strange to us. Maybe we're thankful we don't live by it. You guys are thinking about your sister-in-law. Lord, please don't let my brother die. You women are looking at your husband and your husband's brother. and Don't be putting a little untraceable something-something in your husband's coffee, you know. Strange to us, but very common in this day, not just among God's people, but all the cultures of that day. So let's not stumble over the strangeness of it. What does this law communicate about the heart of God? Well, look in verse 6. In the event that this marriage does take place, God says that the first son that the widow bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. There's the reason. So that the dead brother's name will not be blotted out. Name is so important in Israel. But not just in Israel, it's important to us as well. My son, my only son's middle name is my mother's maiden name. I can't tell you what that name is or I would have to kill you. You know why? Your mother's maiden name is the answer to the security question that you have to ask to reset the passwords that you're constantly forgetting. So you don't get to know the name. But we chose that name because my mother's only brother died at childbirth and she only had one other sister. And so I loved my grandparents and it was very sad for me to think that, that their family name would die. I wanted it to continue, so I gave it to my son. And Adam, I hope you will pass that on to the next generation. That's not part of what you need to remember. But names are important to us, and family is important to us, and continuity is important to us. And we don't want the part of us to die that we believe will die when our name dies. Well, names are also important to God and the continuity that they bring. You know, God in his law that he gave to Moses, he gives instructions for the garments of the high priest. And one of those garments is an ephod. It's an apron-like thing with a front and a back to it. And on the shoulder of, of that ephod, on this shoulder was to be a stone. And on that stone was to be engraved six of the names of the tribes of Israel. On the other stone, on this shoulder was to be engraved the other six names of the tribes of Israel. 
God also described a breastplate that the priest would wear over the ephod. And on that breastplate, God commanded that there be 12 stones, four rows going down, three stones across. And on each of those stones, precious stones, was to be inscribed one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so every time the priest goes before the presence of the Lord, the names representing God's people are there with him. Generation after generation, after generation, after Reuben and Simeon and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun and Benjamin and Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher and Ephraim and Manasseh, long after they're dead, their names representing their families would be before Israel and before God. And with these names before you, with these names before you, you cannot forget the faithfulness of God. You cannot forget the promises that God made to these men and their forefathers. God does not want his people to forget. God is not like us. We often want people to forget what we promised to them. Oh, I hope they don't remember that I promised that I would. You know, it's true. We hope they forget. We regret the promises we make. But God does not share this same hope. Because guess what? God does not regret any promise he ever made. God does not regret his promise to these people. I will be your God. He doesn't regret the promise he made to them. You will be my people. God never hopes that we will forget his promises and not hold him to them. Because God does not intend to change the plan that he has for mankind. And so this is why scripture says, the promises of God are to you and to your descendants after you. Passing down the truth of God, the hope of God, the promises of God from one generation to the next without end. Isaiah 59, verse 21 says, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This speaks to the kind of heart that God has for us, the goal that he has for mankind. He is not seeking our destruction. God's goal is not to blot us out. God's goal is to rescue us, to restore us, to renew us. Ecclesiastes 3.1 says that God has set eternity in their heart. In our hearts, God has placed eternity. This concept of of immortality. And that's God's goal for us. The perpetuity of our lives. That's his goal. He is not a sadist, as Pacino proclaims. Seeking your pain, seeking your suffering. As our culture likes to present him. Yet it is true, according to scripture. 2 Corinthians That outwardly we are wasting away. That's the truth. 
And we know that there's so many ways for our bodies, physical bodies, to waste away, so many ways for us to die in a world that's marred by sin. One of the international students that participates, has participated in Redeemer's ministry to the international students, Chili Cookoff, worshipped here with us, 32-year-old rheumatologist, got a fever last Sunday, 32 years old, died on Wednesday morning. Now we call that a tragedy. It is a tragedy. The old must die, the young may die. No one here, no one can take life for granted. No one of us, I don't care how old you are, none of us are immune to the wasting away process. Yet, 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So we must not lose heart. Second Corinthians tells us, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. God is not seeking to blot you out. Here is a God who can and is overcoming the wasting power of the world. A power that's created by and fueled by sin. He's overcoming the wasting process with eternity. Let's skip to the end. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus promises, To the one who conquers, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Your perpetuity, new name in heaven. Revelation 3, 5, God says, Jesus says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. This is our God. And this is his heart toward us. Again, Pacino's character speaks for our culture. When he says, I'm a, I'm a fan of man, I've nurtured every sensation I've ins- that, that he's inspired to have, I've cared for him, I've never judged him, I've never rejected him. This is what some people believe that you spend every day of your life with. You live beside them, you work beside them. They believe man is good. Not to be rejected, not to be judged because of his imperfections. Man is to be cheered on. Yay! Man is great. It's not true. It is not true. We want it to be true, but we know it's not true. Believing that it is true flies in the face of everything we see around us. Violence, prejudice, insensitivity, apathy, lack of compassion, 
What's the source of these? God? It's man. Man against man. None of these would exist. None of them would exist. Violence, prejudice, all, none of it would exist if man were as good as our culture proclaims him to be. We're sinful. That's the truth. And God has every reason to blot us out, to wipe our name from the face of the earth. And that's not just preacher speak. It's true. And God could justifiably blot us out. But that is not the heart that God has toward us. And that's why Jesus died on the cross. To make sure that we would be never, never be cut off, that our name would never be blotted out. And so... Back to Deuteronomy, that's why this law, this marriage law, is so important. It's why God legislates it, because it points to Jesus, and it points to the cross. The reason, the ultimate reason, the only reason that man's name will never be blotted out. So I finished this morning pondering one last question. Why would the brother disobey God and refuse to marry his brother's wife? It's a what-if scenario that may happen when God's people are living in the promised land. So we don't know the reasons specifically. Perhaps the brother would just want the inheritance for himself. If his brother has no children, guess who gets it? He gets it. Maybe it's just pride. Maybe he was only interested in his own name and his own family. But whatever the reasons may be, and we don't know, in the end of the day, he just did not care. He did not care if his brother's name was blotted out from Israel. And so I think of you and I think of me. And I think about what is required of us to ensure that names of people around whom we spend every day of our lives are included in the Lamb's book of life. I think about what's required of us to do what we can to ensure that their name is not blotted out forever to do what we can do to ensure, as God gives us the ability, that the eternity that God has placed in their heart is spent in the glorious presence of God, beautiful presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and not in eternity, separated from Him. What are you willing to do? What are you willing to risk? To make sure names are added. Risk your reputation. Risk anger. Stop saying those things to me. Risk rejection. Risk ridicule. The time, the effort that's required to build relationships. To do acts of love and kindness before we ever speak the words of the gospel takes time, takes effort. Why do we so often persist in our refusal to take the risks to have names added to the book of life? Shame and guilt 
it's a terrible motivator. All the years I've been a pastor, shame and guilt, terrible motivator. It's not the way to get people to do what you want them to do. Don't shame them. Don't make them feel guilty. So I avoid it. Give me credit whenever possible. But it can't be avoided. It can't be avoided in the passage this morning. Look at the end of verse 8 and into verse 9. If the brother persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, This is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. And so it's the potential of the shame that this brother would experience, the spit in the face, the sandal, whatever that meant in that culture, and the shame that it brought. The thought is that the guilt of that and the shame of that would be the very thing that would motivate this brother to do what was right, to fulfill the duty that God required of him. And so maybe it will motivate us as well. Because it is a shameful thing for us to receive all that we have received from the Lord. The relief, the release from sins forgiven. The very real presence of the Lord, His Spirit indwelling us. Peace with God. Eternity in a place of perfect beauty and bliss. All that. God gives to us for free. And so it's a shameful thing, shameful thing for us to keep all that for ourselves and not be bothered to speak of God's love and the grace of the gospel. To sit silently by and allow our culture to cheer Pacino on. To allow them to believe such things about God that we know to be utterly untrue about a God who cares and loves so deeply, even about an ox. A God who seeks life for us, for them, not destruction. A God who seeks to preserve and not to blot out. That's our God. And the more you and I see that that's who our God is, the more willing we'll be to live generous lives and to speak the truth of the gospel. And so the prayer we should pray this morning is that the Lord would indeed open the eyes of our hearts so that we may see more and more clearly who the Lord is. The more we see Him, the more we'll love Him, the more we know Him, and the more we know Him and love Him, the better able we will be to represent him and the truth of who he is to the culture around us. Let's pray that it may be so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word, for the truth of it, for the challenge of it. I pray for us this morning, Lord, that we would know first, first that we would know you more and more. And so, Lord, if we are not doing anything in our lives to get to know you better, I pray, Lord, that that would be what you would remedy. Even now, in this moment, shame on us 
with all the resources we have available to us for not knowing you, for not knowing your word, for not knowing your truth. No reason for people living in 2016, Charleston, South Carolina, not to know you. You've given us everything we need. And so, Lord, make it the desire of our heart that we would know you more. And, Fathers, we know you more, who you are, your love for us, requirements you place on our lives. As we see more and more your heart, I pray that we would be better and better reflectors of your goodness and your glory and your grace to the world around us. Lord, break our hearts for those who don't know you, who don't love you. Break our hearts for those that seem to us for now to have names that are not included in your book of life. Keep eternity in our hearts, Lord, for good and for ill. To to, to think of our eternity, the promise we have from you, but to think of eternity, Lord, and what it will be like for those who don't know you. And use the knowledge of that, Lord, to inspire us to speak the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.